This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. I'm still in Rome this week, and you can follow along with the highlights of that journey by going over to OutsideTheWalls.com and clicking the Patreon link where we have a number of public posts and videos. As I'm out, we're going to revisit a conversation that we had back in July of 2022 with Father Josh Johnson. Let's listen to that together. What picture pops into your head when you hear the term, the church? This is an important question because often we don't really give any time or intentionality to that question. We don't think about what that picture looks like over our spiritual mantle of who belongs in the family and who doesn't. I remember when I was a Protestant, uh, I was in a particularly fractured denomination, and I spent most of my time when I was around other Protestants like me uh, being on my guard about whether or not this was the right kind of my version of Protestant or whether I needed to be wary of them. And shortly after I became Catholic, and I've told this story here before, um, I saw a news story about a parish, a Catholic parish in Nigeria that had been attacked and a number of congregants, parishioners were killed. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, that's the only explanation I have, I felt for the first time that these were my people. These were people in the body of Christ that I was part of and that I was poorer because they had lost their lives. I was deprived of some portion of communion because I no longer had them here to share it with me. Now, of course, with the communion of saints, that's a whole different story, but but I felt that very viscerally. And it's important for us to ask that question. What does the church look like? Today, we're talking with Father Josh Johnson, a priest of the Diocese of Baton Rouge. He wears a number of hats. He's the director of vocations, a pastor of Sacred Heart of Jesus in Baton Rouge, and the chaplain of Franciscan High School. When he's got free time, which of course apparently is quite a bit, he's also a presenter with Ascension Press, a podcaster, a YouTuber, author of the book Broken and Blessed, An Invitation to My Generation. And the topic of today's conversation is a new book. On Earth as it is in Heaven, Restoring God's Vision for Race and Discipleship, also available on Ascension Press. Father Josh, it's such a pleasure to have you on today. Tia, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm uh, grateful for uh, you inviting me to have a conversation with you. So today is uh, providential that we're talking today. It's the anniversary of the death of Augustus Tolton. Father Augustus Tolton was the first uh, priest uh, in the United States that was obviously African-American. There was, I think, one that predated him. Yeah, so the the Healy brothers were before him, but they they passed for white, Mm -hmm. and so they didn't uh, identify as black, even though they were black. And so he's the first recognized black priest um, that we know of um, in our nation. Well, and his story kind of encapsulates this whole conversation that we're having today because of the the systems that were kind of in place that made it very difficult Mm -hmm. for him to become a priest. He actually had to go be sent over to Rome. And then uh, only through the congregation of the doctrine of faith was he sent back to the United States. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, a tragic story, but also just a beautiful story of perseverance. He, he, uh, his mom, he was born a slave. His dad died in the civil war. 
And so his mom and his family, uh, they escaped slavery and went to the North and they thought things would be better. And uh, when they got to the North, they began to go to a Catholic church up there. And a lot of the people did not want them to go to mass with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, he was in Catholic school as well. And the families protested his presence there. The, the kids in the school uh, called him and his siblings the N-word and persecuted them because of the color of their skin. And so his mom took him out of Catholic school, but the priest, who had a really good priest, uh, and the priest was a white man, uh, the priest uh, invested in him, and the sisters in their name also invested in him and his family and discipled him. And so after he received his first Holy Communion, he perceived the invitation from the Lord to discern the priesthood. Uh, And so they uh, began to accompany him in prayer and in study and in fellowship and in worship. And uh, after a while, they tried to uh, help him to get into the seminary, uh, but every seminary in the United States of America uh, had a racist uh, policy where they would not accept uh, black people. And so they they denied him um, access to seminary formation. And so he continued to be a disciple. He continued to evangelize people in his community. He continued to catechize people in his community. And eventually he was able to go to Rome, get ordained there, I believe on the East, on Easter, uh, at the vigil, Easter, mm-hmm. uh, Easter vigil. And then he came back to America and he served uh, for a number of years until he died of exhaustion. But it was really tragic that as he shared the sacraments with the people of God, white and black, everybody, uh, he was a very popular priest in his community. And a lot of people had conversions when they heard him preach and they saw the way that he was devoted to the Blessed Sacrament. Uh, but other priests, particularly white priests in his community um, who were racist, uh, they discouraged their parishioners from going to Mass with them. They said, if you go to Mass with that inward priest, uh, it's not a valid Mass and you're in sin. And so a lot of people began to reject him because of the leadership in the church in his diocese. And so uh, he didn't have a lot of community. He pretty much labored in the vineyard uh, with angels and saints uh, and, and, and the grace that he got from prayer, um, but, but really by himself. And so he he died uh, from exhaustion and from uh, the heat of just laboring and laboring and laboring by himself. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he potentially might be our first um, canonized African-American uh, saint from North America. Uh, so that's uh, pretty exciting for us right now in the church. Now, this is not a uniquely American problem because we also have St. Martin de Porras, who was yeah. accepted into his community in a provisional and lesser way and had a very difficult time even entering religious life because— of his ethnicity because of his race. Yeah, so North America and South America both um, are are places where racist policies um, were rampant. There's another uh, black priest uh, in Brazil. Uh, his name is uh, Ven- Blessed uh, Francisco de Paula Victor. And uh, he also, he was a slave. And, and then he was freed from slavery. And when he was freed from slavery, he pursued the priesthood and... Uh, Whenever he shared his desires for priesthood, um, a fellow Catholic uh, assaulted him Hmm. because he said black people can't be priests. And his bishop saw his holiness, so his bishop uh, permitted him to come to seminary, but the seminarians rejected him. So his entire seminary formation, he was persecuted by by men who were praying the liturgy hours every day and doing their holy hours and praying their rosaries. But they but they were unjust and they were sinful, and so they persecuted him. But again. He was holy and he was a radical disciple of Jesus. And so even though they cursed him, he blessed them. And even though they persecuted him, he prayed for them and he forgave them of their sins. And eventually he was ordained. He was sent to a parish where and slavery was still legal at this time in Brazil. He was sent to a parish where a third of his parishioners were slave owners. And so imagine how they felt whenever a former slave was now their pastor. They were upset. They would not receive communion from him. Uh, they would walk out during his homilies. Uh, but again, uh, one thing Bishop Archbishop Fobb of Louisville, Kentucky, told me many years ago, he said, he said, Josh, 
it's not so much about whether or not you accept the people where you're sent, uh, the people accept you wherever you're sent. It's about whether or not you will accept them and love them and die for them. And so that's what he did. He remained in the parish that hated him. Uh, it's almost like the biblical Old Testament stories of Hosea and Gomer. They kept cheating on him with the other idols, but he kept loving them. He kept praying for them, fasting for them, and serving them. And eventually his bishop was going to move him to a new parish. And the same parishioners who hated him now loved him. And they protested their bishop. And they said, if you take this holy priest, this saintly priest away from us, then we will revolt. And so the, the bishop kept him in that parish and he helped all those people to grow in uh, holiness and their relationship with Christ and the sacraments life of the church. And so we have a number of really beautiful, faithful witnesses from North America and South America and Europe as well. We have Josephine Bakita behind mm -hmm. me um, who was enslaved and she was in Europe. And so, uh, but, but men and women... Uh, who who identified very closely with Jesus Christ crucified. And because of their proximity to Jesus Christ crucified, they were able to persevere um, in their relationship with the Lord and the messy church that they were members of. You mentioned uh, that, as we were talking about Martin de Porres, that the people who were persecuting him were part of that, or, or rather the priest down in Brazil, the the men who were persecuting him were those who were in formation, who were praying the liturgy of the hours every day. Yeah. Uh, Part of that liturgy of the hours and part of our mass that we pray is the Lord's Prayer, that prayer that yeah. that Christ himself taught us to pray, in which we say, um, thy kingdom come, thy will be done mm. on earth as it is in heaven. Let your, yeah. let your name be considered holy, let your name be hallowed, let your kingdom be manifest, may your yeah. rule extended, uh, and may your will... Your, that positive will of God, may your will be done on earth as it is as it is in heaven. And we that kind of rolls off the tongue. It's very poetic, but I wonder how often we take the time to stop and think about what is it that that rule and reign of God looks like? Because we see that yeah. in the book of Revelation. We see it uh, that every tribe, every nation, every tongue uh, mm -hmm. will bend the knee and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord, that yes. there's this act of corporate worship going on, both with those who have uh, been followers of Christ and those who haven't, every knee will bow in this act of cor corporate worship. Um, and it, that means that people that don't look like us and people not only racially, but also socioeconomically also. Yes. Uh, everybody. Uh, different uh, neurodivergent and, and anyone who might make us uncomfortable walking down the street, guess what? They're going to be right next to us bowing the knee to the same Lord. and. If our worship today doesn't look like that, I have to wonder if there's something of our own preferences or structures that we've put in place to prevent that from happening. Yeah, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he said it in the 1960s when he was doing an interview at Meet the Press. He said, it's a shame that the most segregated hour in the United States of America is 11 o'clock a.m. on Sunday morning uh, at the place where biblically like you said, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, every race, nation, tribe, and tongue are gathered together in worship of God. And if that's what heaven looks like, then heaven should be our goal on earth. And so I just always encourage everybody, especially when I do workshops for priests and for seminarians or for missionaries or religious, I encourage everyone, look at the geographical boundaries of your community. Right. Look at the geographical boundaries and pay attention to examine what are the races, what are the ethnicities, what are the socioeconomics, what are the, the ages, the genders, the religions. Like find out all the different groups of people who live there 
And if, if those people uh, live in your geographical boundaries but are not represented in your church on Sunday for the holy sacrifice of the mass, then that means that there's a problem. That means that you are the one, you are the potential saint, the disciple of Jesus Christ, who our Lord is inviting to go out to accompany those people because Jesus Christ is so clear in Scripture. I mean, I love the Word of God. The Word of God is my bread and my butter. Um, and the Word of God, He says it to us very clearly. He says, go out and make disciples of all nations. That's the very last thing he said to us before he ascended into heaven is go out and make disciples of all nations. I think we should always pay attention to like the first thing that is spoken and the last words that are spoken. Like we have a devotion to the seven last words on the cross. We should have a devotion to the last words before our Lord Jesus Christ ascended to heaven. The word nations in Greek is literally translated to ethnos, which means ethnicities. Yep. So Jesus himself says, go make disciples of all ethnicities. And the apostles, after spending nine days in prayer, like fulfilling the first mandate, because if you recall at the Last Supper, mm -hmm. the very first thing that Jesus Christ told the apostles, the first priests, the first bishops to do, it wasn't to teach or preach or baptize. The very first mandate they received at their ordination was to sit, watch, and pray before the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ and the Garden of Gethsemane. They weren't faithful. They weren't faithful then. But after his ascension, they were faithful to the interior life. They were faithful to prayer. And because they were faithful to prayer, which I was, this morning I was reading the catechism, uh, section four, the battle of prayer, right? And, and why is it that Satan doesn't want us to pray? Uh, Satan doesn't want us to pray because he knows that the fruit of our adoration of Christ um, in prayer is going to be imitation of Christ in the world. And so when the apostles were rooted in prayer together for nine days, they received the Holy Spirit and they imitated Christ who went out to not only the Jews, but to the Gentiles, to the Samaritans. He went out to, to all these people to, to draw them in, to draw them into to the kingdom. So the apostles uh, went to people from Africa and Asia and Europe, uh, and they shared Jesus. They shared Jesus Christ with all these people. And these people uh, receiving Christ, it was so supernatural that John had a vision of heaven. And the one good thing about John's vision of heaven was that unlike other mystics in our church's history, uh, we can't always trust them because they're not infallible, right? Like even St. Catherine Labrae, who I love a lot and I love the Miraculous Medal, Pope Benedict XV, he said that many of her writings were filled with theological errors. Mm -hmm. just, just because saints are, are locutionists, are visionaries, um, had apparitions or whatever that were legit and were verified, doesn't mean that they always perceive what the Lord, our Blessed Mother, communicated with clarity. What well, John is, in, it's the word of God. Right. It's inspired, it's inerrant, it's infallible. And so unlike those other books by the mystics that we can't always trust, we can trust the word of God. He saw heaven. And when he saw heaven, he saw the fruit of the Acts of the Apostles. The, the apostles going out to all people. And then uh, and, so, and so what he saw in heaven is what we're supposed to be seeing today on earth. And so if my earth, if my mass in my parish, that is a diverse parish, my, my geographical boundaries have people who speak English and Spanish, have people who are black and who are white and Latino and Asian, have people who are young and old, have people who are rich and poor middle class in my boundaries, then those people need to be worshiping with me at mass. They need to be adoring the Blessed Sacrament in adoration. They need to be joining me in Bible studies. They should be invited to my RCA programs invited to our parish missions and retreats, and they should be participating in our fellowship with the poorest of the poor. And if they're not, then I do believe that our Lord Jesus Christ will hold us accountable on Judgment Day. And he's going to say to us, why, why didn't you invite me? Yeah. And I'm going to say, what are you talking about? I had, a, I had a thriving Bible study. What are you talking about? My parish had 40 people come in every year for RCA. What are you talking about? Uh, we had a packed adoration chapel. And he's going to say, remember that time you saw that person who was a different ethnicity than you? Uh, 
at the grocery store and you chose to invite someone else who looked like you down the aisle to, to your Bible study, but when you saw them, you chose to not do it, that's the, that's when. Or remember that time you saw that, that homeless person at the shelter and you fed them food, but you never invited them to the sacraments? Like that, that That's whenever you didn't invite me because he identifies himself with, with us. And so I can go on for hours about yeah. this. I feel very passionate about it, as you can tell. But I just I really am convicted by the word of God. And I, my hope, my prayer, my desire is that everyone will be convicted by his voice. His voice is clear. There's a a yes and here, because I 100% agree with what you're saying, that we ought to look like the community that that surrounds us. At at the same time, I think we also have to look at our history and say, is my community's ethnic makeup in any way influenced by the policies that have come before us, maybe 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago? Uh, Because if if this community looks like I do because of someone else's will and intention, then I have mm. to go and counteract that and, and invite even beyond that boundary for the sake of, of mirroring on earth what we see in heaven. Yeah, that's, uh, it's, that's the hidden things that oftentimes keep us apart is not being aware of our history and also not being aware of the practices and policies that might still be in place that might prevent people from coming to the table. And so there are still Catholic schools in the United States of America today in the year 2022 um, that have have rules in their handbook policies that, that have things that say, like, uh, you can't have braids. Well, for um, African-American girls, yeah. uh, that's what they wear. And so by you having that policy, that written rule in your handbook— you're excluding them from from participating in your school unless they perm their hair, which could damage their hair, which their hair could fall out if they perm it. Or you're telling them that, hey, we want you to to wear an afro. Well, they might not all want to wear the, the afro or something like that, right? So um, it's, it's important for us to recognize that there are even to this day um, practices and policies, written rules and unwritten rules um, that continue to foster racial division in our churches and in our chanceries and in our in our schools throughout throughout America. And so it's important for us to then be in relationship with other people who do look different from us and come from different backgrounds. So that way they can help us to read those, those policies and be aware of those practices. Um, so that way we can say, Oh, I wasn't aware of that. Let's change that. Um, like there's right now in my diocese of Baton Rouge, uh, in Vashu, Louisiana, I did not write about this in my book. I had it in the original version of my book and I, and I took it out. Um, but it's, it's a true story. So right now in Vashu, Louisiana, there's a swimming pool and, uh, and in Vashri and, it was founded after the Civil Rights Act. So the Civil Rights Act happened in the 1960s. And when the Civil Rights Act happened, that is when um, uh, direct racist practices and policies came to an end legally. Right. But indirect racist practices and policies, written rules, and unwritten rules, continue to exist, right? Um, and so what happened is a group of Catholics, um, white Catholics, um, were like, well, we don't want black people uh, to, to be in all these places as us now, so let's found a, a swimming pool. So they founded the swimming pool, and, and and basically anyone can apply. So black people can apply. But since it was founded in the 1960s, not one black person has been accept has been invited. They've they've mm-hmm. all applied for years, but they've been denied access. They get away with this because it's a practice. It's not a written rule. It's a practice. Now, the problem is, is these are Catholics right. who go to mass at the Catholic church. And because it's a small town and everyone in town knows who founded this swimming pool, well, that, and they see who's in leadership, who's giving out communion on Sundays, which is a whole other conversation, right? right? Um, and, and who's doing um, liturgical roles and who's the baptism prep coordinator, the R, our, our RCA director, our PSR teacher, or, or whatever it might be, right? I'm just giving the different potential roles that these right. people have. Well, black people are like, well, I know that you're, you're part of that pool, 
that is still racist. And so why am I going to go to church whenever you're standing there in the sanctuary reading, proclaiming the word of God, but you're not acting like the, the body of Christ in the world? And so it's just really important for us to, to be aware of the hidden forces that oftentimes keep us apart from gathering together in worship of God at the, the most important um, prayer ever, which is the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. Right. Well, and so the, the scriptures say that we were made to be sharers in the divine life. What is the yeah. divine life but communion, right? The whole, mm -hmm. the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in perpetual communion with one another. And so our, our gathering together uh, in Mass should be a true sharing of communion. Uh, yeah. Uh, something that, I, that I've seen, I've lived in Texas, I've lived in Oklahoma, I've lived in a number of places where there are multicultural parishes. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes what I'll see is one or two persons of color in a sea of, of white people. Yeah. And largely that's because that's uh, the, the way that things have been, or that's the economic uh, makeup of that specific community, or, or we kind of maybe even chalk it up to, well, that's because uh, my neighbor is a Baptist and I don't want to, you know, impose on them by inviting them to my, you know, stuff shirt, stayed mass kind of thing. Uh, and so I, I don't, I don't have, um, opinions that this isn't any way nefarious, but at the same time, I think we have to look at it and say, for the places that we have some room at the table, are we making room at the table just to kind of come in at the corner and eat the scraps? Uh, the the Hispanic masses that get the worst times uh, in the schedule, uh, or or are we making, if we're doing something cross-cultural, are we allowing them to show us something? Or are we allowing them into the leadership of that yeah. specific thing? Are we allowing their cultures to inform us rather than just have our understanding and our preference and our culture be the kind of driving force behind the way that our worship goes? Yeah, two things. One, rewind to the Baptist neighbor. Even if our neighbor is Baptist, mm -hmm. like the Lord is expecting us because we have the fullness of truth, right? right? In the Catholic Church, we have the sacraments. And so um, I, again, I believe the Lord will hold us accountable on Judgment Day for not inviting everyone to at least visit the Blessed Sacrament, right? If the Blessed Sacrament, the Eucharist really is Jesus, then I have a responsibility to at least invite my brothers and sisters who are not Catholic to come to adoration with me. That's where they can fully participate in adoration. They can kneel down with me. They can sit down. They can pray. I have seen conversions happen mm -hmm. whenever I've invited non-Catholics to Eucharistic adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. We have an obligation, I think, to also invite them to our small group Bible studies, our parish missions. There are many things. In Acts 2.42, the apostles were devoted, it says, to prayer, study, fellowship, and worship. And so often in the Catholic Church, we always focus on worship, which is really important, right. but we forget prayer, study, and fellowship. And so even if my neighbors already know Jesus, um, if I have the fullness of what the Lord has to offer, then I do believe that the Lord expects for us to at least invite them to fellowship, study, and prayer. Um, and then from being rooted in that with us, uh, they will naturally be drawn to want to worship the same God we worship at the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. Let's also uh, say that uh, in order to invite them to come to our Bible studies, we have to have Bible studies. We, we, we got to, this is true. You're right. We got to be some, doing this. Some, some of our parishes aren't doing that. You're right. This is, this is very true. Um, but yeah, but also to speak to enculturation, I just taught a course at St. Myrid's uh, graduate school of theology a few weeks ago. Uh, and it was one of my, my topics uh, for this course. It was, it was the, the course is about making disciples of all nations, but was specifically on enculturation. And, and I think we can, we learn from, from the saints and we learn from, from heaven, how to do this well. Uh, St. Maximilian Colby, 
whenever he was trying to uh, make disciples of people who were of Asian descent, like he grew the big old beard, right? Because he knew in that culture, beards were, were respected. It meant that you were a person of wisdom. And so he took time to time to learn their culture. St. Isaac Jogues and John Brebuff, whenever they came to the to North America, they lean into the, the culture of the indigenous men and women of, of this land, the people who were here before the Europeans came here. And, and they learned their language, which meant that they spent time and they were able to share the gospel with these people in a way that they could understand understand it in a way they could receive it. So they enculturated the, the church's teaching. They, they accepted what was good of that culture and reverenced it. And then what was not good, that, that, that's the, that's the bathwater they threw away. But the most important person in salvation history who gives us a model for enculturation outside of Jesus Christ, of course, because um, he had uh, incarnational evangelization that he did, but is the Blessed Mother, Our Lady Guadalupe. Mm-hmm. When Our Lady Guadalupe appeared to the, the Aztec Indians in, in Guadalupe, Mexico, uh, she took on their culture and there were things about their culture that she, it's, it's on her, it's on her painting. It's oh, not painting, it's not a painting, it's right. a miraculous image, but it's like the, the, the ribbon around her waist symbolized to those people that she was pregnant. Like, Ain't nobody from Europe knew what that meant. They were like, oh, look, she's wearing a black belt. Like, what's that? But all the people who were yeah. of that, that culture, they're like, we know what that meant. And they knew what it meant that she, that she was standing before the sun. And that she, like, all the different things meant something to them. And so if we could take time to invest in intentional relationships with the people of our community, then we can say, oh, this is really beautiful and this is really good. And this could actually enhance our capacity to, to evangelize well and to catechize well. Um, and, and this right here is not so good. The third point you made is leadership at the table. Yeah, like as we accompany people in discipleship and the relationship with Jesus Christ, like they need to have a, a, a space at the decision-making table. Uh, again, because people of our community will know things about the community that we don't know, and we might end up doing things that could hurt them and other people from receiving the gospel if they don't have a voice at the table. So a story I like to tell is um, it's, a, it's an African parable about these these monkeys who there was like this storm happening in the rainforest and all of a sudden all the animals are trying to get to the top of the mountain and the monkeys like they're super agile so they got up there quickly uh and other animals are like on a struggle bus but they get there eventually and the monkeys look down they notice all these fish there's all these fish and they're like hopping up in the water and they're going down they're up and down like oh oh no these fish are probably drowning let's go save the fish so these good monkeys who had these really good intentions decided to go back down to where the water was risk their lives to save these fish without ever communicating with the fish and asking the fish for their wisdom of of how if they even needed help um and they began to take them out one by one all the fish they got out and they brought them to the top of the of of, of the mountains and now the fish at first were like waving back and forth and moving around wiggling and they're like oh they must be traumatized because we just you know we just saved them and and then the fish were very calm they said look they're they're resting peacefully they're there's so much peace because we saved them and then a few hours later they realized that the fish weren't breathing and they said what happened mm-hmm. what happens is is they ended up hurting the fish they ended up killing the fish because they never spent time with the fish to learn from the fish how they could best walk with the fish mm-hmm. and so this is something that we ought to always do in our parishes is as we begin to examine the geographical boundaries what are the, the religions that are present here? Ethnicities, races, genders, ages, the the socioeconomic background, the, like the the employment rate, unemployment rate. All those things are so important for us to become aware of. We then must like discover by being with them, learning from them, how we can best accompany them 
And as we accompany them, we invite them to have a voice so that way they're able to share with us, whoa, Father Josh, like that will not work in our community. That will actually push people away from the gospel, which unfortunately a lot of times we unintentionally do in our parishes because we um, are exclusively working with people who think like us, look like us, pray like us, um, and act like us. And that's not cool. We're talking today with Father Josh Johnson, a priest of the Diocese of Baton Rouge. The new book is On Earth As It Is In Heaven, Restoring God's Vision for Race and Discipleship available on Ascension Press. When we come back, we're going to be talking specifically about how we can practically implement some of these things in our parishes to make our parish, our corporate worship, look on earth like it does in heaven. Come be a part of the conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL. I'm in Rome this week, and so we are revisiting a conversation we had with Father Josh Johnson back in July of 2022. Let's listen together. We're talking today with Father Josh Johnson, a priest of the Diocese of Baton Rouge. The new book is On Earth as It Is in Heaven, Restoring God's Vision for Race and Discipleship. It's available right now on Ascension Press. Father Josh, thanks for being with us today. Thanks, man. It's, it's it's a gift to be with you. I'm enjoying the conversation. Now I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna put you on notice here. We're gonna we're gonna get um maybe a little dicey for a second. Okay. If All as right. if we have not yet, um, you are a, a priest in the diocese of Baton Rouge. I've been I am. I've been to Baton Rouge. Lovely, just one fantastic food. Two, how many places have a college with a tiger on the campus? Uh, three. Uh, it is a racially diverse community. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are the only black priest in the diocese of Baton Rouge. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your story and what drew you into the priesthood in the Catholic church and maybe some insight into what discourages vocations of other men of color around our country, not just in Baton Rouge, so that we can, as we're praying for every week, praying for uh, vocations, what we can do to help create an environment that, that fosters and welcomes and encourages uh, all men who are uh, deeply in love with God to consider the priesthood. Thank you so much. Yes. So I, uh, I'm from Baton Rouge. My mom is Catholic and my dad is African-American Methodist Episcopalian. Mom's white, dad's black. I uh, was raised in the Catholic Church, was sacramentalized in the Catholic Church, was baptized, received my first communion, first reconciliation and confirmation. Um, but I didn't know Jesus. I didn't know Jesus. And so after my confirmation, a friend of mine invited me to a Steubenville South Youth Conference in Alexandria, Louisiana. And on June 26, 2004, at 8 o'clock p.m. on Saturday night, during Eucharistic Adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. Um, and again, at this time, I wasn't practicing my faith uh, I fell in love with Christ mm-hmm. in the Eucharist. I had a profound encounter where Bishop Sam Jacobs processed through the crowds with the Eucharist. And when he came face to face with me, I just received the grace to believe that this really is God. And I asked God what his plan was for my life. And the first words I perceived from the Lord were, I, I love you. Not I used to love you before he began to live a life of mortal sin. Not I'm going to love you once you go to confession, but I see you, I know you. Um, and in the midst of all your mess, I love you. So I wanted more of of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament after that. So I began to go to Eucharistic adoration every day after that encounter. And the more I went to adoration, 
the more the priesthood came into my mind. I didn't want to be a priest. I didn't want to be celibate. I didn't. I never saw a black priest, so I didn't know that there were. I didn't know we could be priests. In fact, the first time I saw Father Stan Fortuna, who's not black, he's a CFR, the rapping priest. Uh, he's Italian, but he he looks black sometimes. I saw him at a youth <laughs> conference, and I thought he was a black priest, and I got really excited. And I remember thinking. I guess I could be a priest because I see another black priest. Like the very first time in my life, I see a black priest. I guess we can do this. And uh, after speaking with him, I found out he was white. And I was like, ah, oh, well, I could still be a priest, I guess. <laughs> but I, I didn't want to be a priest. I went to Southern University um, and just the thought never left me. People began to make comments to me about the priesthood. I never thought about it. I didn't want them to ask those questions. Every time I met a seminarian, I got excited. I didn't want to be excited. And when I finally visited the seminary, it felt like home. And I didn't want it to feel like home. And so I decided, um, because God really did fulfill me in prayer, like he really did satiate that ache that I think every single one of us experienced, I decided to go to seminary because I loved him. And I didn't want to be a priest, but I was like, I love you, and I think you want me to go, so I'll go for love of you. And after going to seminary for love of God alone, I began to desire the priesthood after maybe four years into it. And after eight years, I was ordained, and it's been a gift um, ever since, what can we do to, to cultivate more vocations in uh, particularly the African-American community? Uh, number one is invest in the African-American community. So for our priests who have, have parishes, um, that in their geographical boundaries, they have uh, people of every race, nation, tribe, and tongue, but particularly they, there might be a predominant black community or black neighborhood in their parish. Um, whether or not those neighbors are registered parishioners or not, they're your parishioners. That's right. By virtue of canon law. It says canon law says we're responsible for every single soul's salvation in the geographical boundaries of our land. So I encourage the priest to be present to the land. Go walk with the neighborhood and pray the rosary. Get to know your people. Accompany them. Play basketball with them. Invite them to Bible studies and youth group in your parish missions and retreats and service to the poor. Uh, invest in intentional relationships with them. And most importantly, accompany them in prayer, teach them how to pray. Like that's, as a vocation director, that's the one thing I, I, I try to do when I meet with, with campus ministers, our teachers, our, our, our priests, is I encourage them to, A, be rooted in the interior life themselves. Like, are you committed to a holy hour every day? Do you know how to pray like Divina? Do your people see you pray? But also teach your people how to pray because Pope Benedict XVI said, we can trust our young people to respond to a call from God if they know God through prayer. Um, so teach people yeah. how to pray and prayer changes everything. I, I want to push on that just a little bit because I, okay. I don't disagree at all and I appreciate your calling your brother priests to that action. But most of the people who are listening to me are not priests. And, mm. and, and I don't want to relegate that, that part of the solution just to the priesthood because yeah. we do have a shortage of priests and that manifests in a number of ways. So uh, we who are parishioners in an ethnically diverse parish, who we don't have direct responsibility mm -hmm. for the salvation of those souls like the priest does canonically, but we do have uh, yeah. the mandate of Christ to go out into all the world to make disciples. What what are things that we can do? Let to me tell help you. So that? that's what I was going to get to next. Was one of my favorite saints as a layperson. Uh, he's not canonized saint yet, uh, but he was a young man who uh, socially awkward, super introvert, uh, a nominal Catholic. And one Sunday at mass, the priest said, "You can all be saints." And this young man was super inspired. I was like, I could be a saint. Like me, this hardcore introvert, super socially awkward, have a lot of anxiety, have a lot of health issues. I could be a saint. So he went home and began to devour the books of St. Teresa of Avila and John on the Cross. As he began to grow in his personal relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, he began to go daily mass and he began to pray before mass and after mass. And the priest noticed him spending a lot of time in, in prayer. Uh, and the priest asked him, can he become a youth minister? And he was like, 
I have no theology, Father. Like I, I, I know, and I'm an introvert. I'm socially awkward, not me. He eventually prayed about it, perceived the Lord, said, do it. So he did it. So every Sunday after Mass, he would stand outside the door of the church, and he would invite young people uh, to his youth group. And in their youth group, they didn't have programs. They didn't have projects. They didn't have big plans. All they did was prayed. He taught them how to pray the rosary, how to pray before the Blessed Sacrament, how to pray with Scripture. And every week, his youth group grew exponentially. Well, one Sunday after Mass, a 20-year-old man came to Mass who uh, was depressed. His dad just died, um, and he he was really uh, discouraged right now. He even struggled with some teachings of the church, went to Mass, and he was invited. He was invited to this youth group, and he needed community. He was uh, lonely, so he went. He learned how to pray, uh, grew his relationship with the Lord. And the fruit of this young man's uh, youth group, uh, this young man who had no theological training, he wasn't catechized uh, through any institutes, or he, he just knew how to pray. The fruit was, I believe, 11 men went on to become priests. Three of those men became bishops, and one became Pope St. John Paul the Great. He was a 20-year-old man who was struggling, and he, uh, he attributes his vocation to his father um, and to his youth minister, servant of God, Jan Taranowski. And so I believe y- all people, lay people, are invited to respond to God's invitation to holiness, and they're invited to cultivate a profound interior life, which means that they need to um, be rooted in in daily prayer. And then what do they do to cultivate vocations in the black community or brown community um, or Latino, you know, whatever community it is, um, they they need to be rooted in the word. And by being a witness, they'll be able to accompany other people in their relationship with Jesus. And the more we know his voice in prayer, then we're going to hear God invite us. Augustus Tolton knew God in prayer, Father Augustus Tolton, but as a young man, because he was discipled in the interior life, Whenever he was in adoration, when he was before the Blessed Sacrament, he was able to perceive the invitation from the Lord. And he was able to persevere, even though uh, the, the Catholics of his time discouraged his vocation. Uh, he was able to persevere because he was rooted in prayer. So the Eucharist sustained him, and the Eucharist um, and the Scripture will sustain people in our community today. So we got to know Jesus, and we got to share Jesus. And if we don't do that, then again, again, I must say, the Lord will hold us accountable yeah. for for not drawing all people to worship. Well, and let's talk about that being held accountable because mm-hmm. we've got two pictures of of heaven. We've got that every nation, tribe, tongue, this corporate worship together. We also have the entrance into heaven where the sheep and the goats are divided in Matthew 25. Yes. And Jesus says to them, whatever you did to the least of these, whatever you did to the marginalized of these, whatever you did to these, my brothers— and sisters, you've done to me. And so one, I've seen this floating around. I can't recall who it's attributed to him. I think it may even be Chrysostom. It's one of the fathers that said, if you, uh, if you can't see Christ in the poor, you won't find him in the chalice. Yeah. And, and I think that we have to do an examination of conscience and an examination of our spiritual eyesight to say, Mm. am I overlooking things that Christ wouldn't have me overlook? Am I overlooking the person who gives me great annoyance or great fear? um, Maybe I'm suspicious of because I want to have a comfortable uh, experience with worship experience with Mm. the Eucharist. Uh, Am I not inviting that person? Because if I invited them, I would have to take my purse up with me in the communion line because I wouldn't want to leave it in the pew. Um, am, am I resisting the call to go out and make disciples of all nations because I don't know if I would like what I would see when all nations came? 
Yeah, yeah, I think that it's important for us to just pay attention to the voice of the enemy, right? Um, the voice of the enemy is the same today as it was in the book of Genesis in the garden. Um, Satan, when he attacked Adam and Eve, uh, he he knew that they heard the word of God very clearly. Mm-hmm. And then he goes to them and says, but did God really say that? Did God really say that you can't eat of the, of the fruit of this tree? And he knows that we, we've heard God speak, and he knows that we've heard God say, go out to all nations, to all ethnicities. And he says to us today, does God really expect you, TL, does he expect you to go out to all people? No, he just wants you to go to some people. Mm-hmm. He, he, he can't expect you to go to, to women, you're a man. He can't expect you to go to, to people who speak Spanish, you speak English. He can't expect you to go out to people who are really rich. You're, you're middle class. He can't expect you to go out to, to black people. You're white, right? He, he will instill these lies into our, our, our minds, and it's important for us to— one, one, Again, one of the fruits of prayer is the Lord purifies our mind, and we begin in the fruit of prayer with the Word of God particularly. I think one of the issues in our church today is a lot of Catholics aren't proximate to the Bible, mm-hmm. and because they're not proximate to, to the Bible, they, they put their— their family wisdom, which is actually wrong, above the word of God, or they put their politics before the sacred scriptures, which is wrong. But if they were rooting the word of God, then and they're approximate to his voice in the word, then they'd be like, wait a minute, this thought I have is not in alignment with the word. Like every day when I pray a scripture, every day I get convicted. I'm, I, I'm inspired and I'm encouraged. I'm convicted. Like reading the Bible for me is like waking up in the morning and going to the bathroom and seeing my face. And I got that stuff in my eye that like crust right here and I got to get out. And I don't have a lot of hair, but the little bit of hair I have, it's like kind of over. I'm sure it's like your beard's like this. No, your beard's like, like squished or whatever. You can't see that unless you go in a mirror. The mirror shows us things about ourselves that we have to like, all right, we got to uh, fix it up. That's what the Bible does, man. When I read the Bible, I'm always forever convicted. I'm like, oh, you're showing me things about myself that are not in alignment with, 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 the, with the mind of Christ, with the logic of Christ. He says, pray for those who persecute you. He says, forgive, the, forgive your enemies. I'm like, ooh. I'm, he says, don't be bitter. In Ephesians chapter uh, 4, verses 30 32, he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. He says, put, put all bitterness away yeah. right? and be, be forgiving of others as God and Christ forgave you. And I'm like, ooh, shoot. Right now, I'm not... I'm, I'm being bitter right now. First uh, Corinthians 13, he, he says, love is patient, love is kind. I'm like, ooh, I'm being very impatient right now. So daily the word of God convicts me. So I just think if more Catholics were proximate to the word of God, that they would be inspired, encouraged, and convicted by the voice of Christ uh, to, to do the will of Christ. Ignorance of Scripture, as St. Jerome said, is ignorance of Christ. And so a lot of people are ignorant of Scripture, so we don't really know Christ. And so the, the God that we're praying to isn't really the God of, of, of the church, the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. The book is On Earth As It Is in Heaven, Restoring God's Vision for Race and Discipleship. Go pick it up over on Ascension Press and learn, be, be examined, uh, learn how to— maybe reorient your way of being, uh, reorient your efforts of evangelization and reorient your idea of what the kingdom of God looks like. Father Josh, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks to y'all. God bless, man. If you missed any part of my conversation with Father Josh Johnson, maybe you want to go back and listen to something again or share it with your friends over on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. And there's also more. Each and every week, we have an extra segment that we record 
just to get a couple of extra questions in that don't make it to the broadcast, but they do make it to our Patreon support community. We have a great community that helps keep us on the air with their support. And in gratitude, we give them those extra questions. And now there's even more to the more. Uh, recently, the, uh, the, the leading industry a video chat program decided they were not going to have a free version that let us do a full hour long interview anymore. Uh, and so we've moved to a new platform that actually allows us to capture really good quality video as well as that audio. And we're making those, those segments available, uh, those extra segments available in video as well as audio. If you want to learn more about that, just go to outsidethewalls.com, click the Patreon link there in the navigation bar. Uh, everything about six months old and older is available for everyone to see. Uh, and of course, our patron uh, supporters get everything right as the, the episode comes out. So they get it about six months in advance. You can go look through the archive, see if that's something that you're interested in. And if you are, well, consider being a part of that support community and getting everything just as it comes out. Now, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching by putting the magisterium at your fingertips, linking Scripture to the catechism, to the fathers and doctors of the church, biblical commentaries, ecclesial documents, and so much more. Learn more at Verbum.com. Our reading from Scripture today comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30. Moses said to the people, If only you would heed the voice of the Lord your God and keep his commandments and statutes that are written in this book of the law when you return to the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. For this command that I enjoin on you today is not too mysterious and remote for you. It is not up in the sky that you should say, who will go up into the sky and get it for us, and tell us of it, that we may carry it out? Nor is it across the sea that you should say, Who will cross the sea to get it for us, and, and tell us of it, that we may carry it out? No. It is something very near to you, already in your mouths and in your hearts. You only have to carry it out. That reading comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30. And I can just imagine that at this point in time, maybe Moses is feeling a little bit frazzled. Maybe he's feeling like he's got a, a whole nation of teenagers who just are acting like they don't know what the command is, so they don't have to do it. But he knows that they know it, because they've recited it over and over. And what is this command that he enjoins on them today? It's the same one that he told them back in Deuteronomy 6. So we've had 24 chapters of them knowing this commandment. And that commandment, of course, is to hear, O Israel, that the Lord your God is Lord alone. Therefore you shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart and with your whole being and with your whole strength. He's bringing them back to this because they already know the answer, but they're pretending like they don't so that they can 
continue ignoring it. Now, we can point fingers at the people of Israel, and we can point fingers at the Old Testament and say, ha ha, look how many times they didn't get it. Aren't we glad that we have uh, the, the church and the sacraments? And the truth of the matter is this. You and I are both the subject of this rant, as it were, by Moses. For this command that God enjoins on us today is not too mysterious and remote for you or for me. It's not up in the sky that we should say who will who will go all the way up there and help us figure out this super mysterious thing. It's not across the sea that we can't figure it out. The command, the new command that has been given to us is love one another as God in, in Christ has loved us. This is that command that really is just a reworking of that first one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second greatest commandment is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Care for the needs of your neighbor as you would care for the needs of yourself. We have to remember that the word love as it's used there in the scripture is not one of super sappy emotion. St. Thomas Aquinas said that love is to will the good of the other, that positive will. And so if we love our neighbor as ourself, then we are willing their good in the same way that we will our own good. The way that we feed our own appetites is the way that we help sate the needs of others. I, I don't know too many people uh, who, if they have a, a hunger or if they have a craving for a certain sweet thing, and maybe this is just projection, guys, uh, that they won't go and get that thing. You know, you're standing in the, the checkout line and you see a candy bar and you're like, ooh, I don't need that, but I'm in the checkout line. So I'll go ahead and pick it up. If we will feed our impulses in that way, should we not all the much more feed the spiritual and physical needs of others, not just their inclinations and their, their cravings, but their actual needs to care for one another because we are members of one another. Our reading from church history drives home this point even a little more. It's a reading from a letter to the Corinthians by St. Clement. The command has been written, cling to the saints, for those who cling to them will be sanctified. There is a passage in Scripture as well which states, With the innocent man you will be innocent, and with the chosen you will be chosen also. Likewise, with a perverse you will deal perversely. Devote yourselves then to the innocent and the just. They are God's chosen ones. Why are there strife and passion, schisms and even war among you? Do we not possess the same spirit of grace which was given to us, and the same calling in Christ? Why do we tear apart and divide the body of Christ? Why do we revolt against our own body? Why do we reach such a degree of insanity that we forget that we are members of one another? Do not forget the words of Jesus our Lord. Woe to that man! 
it would be better for him if he had not been born rather than scandalize one of my chosen ones. Indeed, it would be better for him to have a great millstone round his neck and to be drowned in the sea than that he lead astray one of my chosen ones. Your division has led many astray, has made many doubt, has made many despair, and has brought grief upon us all, and still your rebellion continues. Pick up the letter of blessed Paul the Apostle. What did he write to you at the beginning of his ministry, even though you had developed factions? So Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote to you concerning himself and Cephas and Apollos. But that division involved you in less sin, because you were supporting apostles of high reputation and a person approved by them. We should put an end to this division immediately. Let us fall down before our Master and implore his mercy with our tears. Then, he will be reconciled to us and restore us to the practice of brotherly love that befits us. For this is the gate of justice that leads to life. As it is written, open to me the gates of justice. When I have entered there, I shall praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The just shall enter through it. There are many gates which stand open, but the gate of justice is the gateway of Christ. All who enter through this gate are blessed, pursuing their way in holiness and justice, performing all their tasks without discord. A person may be faithful. He may have the power to utter hidden mysteries. He may be discriminating in the evaluation of what is said and pure in his actions. But the greater he seems to be, the more humbly he ought to act, and the more zealous he should be for the common good rather than his own interests. That reading comes from a letter to the Corinthians by St. Clement. That first acknowledgement, that first admonishment to us, cling to the saints, cling to the saints, for those who cling to them will be sanctified. This is such, I think, a prescription for us in the midst of these questions of, of how we treat one another, of who we belong to, is to look to the lives and the examples of the saints who have gone before us, asking for their intercession, because they dwell perfectly in unity with one another, and they pray that we would do the same. This is the same prayer that Jesus himself prayed. He prayed to the Father there in the end of the book of John, I think around John 17. He prayed that we would be one as he and the Father are one, that we would have this communion and unity with one another that only is possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because on our own, on our own, we, we find all kinds of things to be divided about, about which sport team we support, how we spice our food, what, what kind of movies we like to watch, much less the, the most important questions of life, uh, about how we order our society. Even in these things where there's disagreement, 
we can, empowered by the Holy Spirit, come and find unity with one another in the bonds of peace, because we are members of one another, made in the image and likeness of God, and we ought to be pursuing that unity at at great cost, if not all cost, because that unity is the sign to the world. They will know that you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. So, Lord, hear our prayer. Make us one. Help us to grow in discernment. Help us to grow in unity. That's all the time we have for today. Today's show was brought to you by Drs. Michael and Julie Highlands and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link, and consider becoming one of those supporters. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.